0: our attention to your word. We thank you for the lessons that we have learned in Hosea. Uh, And though they are some hard truths, uh, they remind us of how faithful you are to extend mercy to us and to show us the way even when uh, uh, we've gotten off of the track that you want us to be on. Uh, So bless this time together now and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to make your way to Hosea chapter 9. We're going to consider uh, chapters 9 and 10 tonight. I'm going to read all of chapter 9 and then only a part of chapter 10, though I'll give an overview of it. And the message is entitled, It is Time to Seek the Lord. It's Time to Seek the Lord. Now, we are currently in the season of Advent, uh, the time leading up to Christmas. Uh, Advent celebrations in churches have tended to be in more liturgical churches or denominations, uh, though there has seemed to be more of an emphasis in Baptist churches in recent years as part of the celebration of the Christian calendar. Uh, The word advent means arrival or appearing. It can also mean a coming into place. Uh, We speak of the first advent of Christ in the church, and then also the second advent of Christ Speaking of his first coming as a babe in the manger and then his second coming when he returns. And when we think about Advent, Advent is something that lasts four Sundays beginning with the fourth Sunday before Christmas and then ends on Christmas Eve. It's a time of expectation. Well, I would say to you tonight that Hosea chapter 9 is about expectation as well but it is a much darker expectation of judgment because of the sin of the people. And then it is followed by chapter 10 in the focus on the importance of seeking the Lord. You remember that idolatry and spiritual failure, moral corruption were everywhere among the people. So what God did was God sent a message of judgment, followed by a message of hope. And this is a pattern that we find in the Scripture, a message of, message of judgment followed by a message of hope. God had been offended by the unfaithfulness of his people, and he would ultimately send the Deliverer, Jesus, the Messiah, to rescue us from our sins. As we looked at chapter 8 leading up to this, the subject is on sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. And the biblical principle is both positively and negatively. And then that theme is going to arise again as we get tonight to chapter 10. Now, we need to be careful as we do that not to misplace our worship, not to misplace our faith, and not to misplace our offerings. So what I want to do in this Bible study is look at this really in two major sections, beginning with chapter 9 in the focus that we find here. There is no place where God cannot be found. Or to state it another way, God is everywhere present. The late Francis Schaefer wrote a book entitled The God Who Is There, and he made the point that uh, God is ultimately inescapable. No matter where you go, you'll have to deal with God. And that being said, there's a certain sense in which God can remove his blessing or remove his hand from people based on their disobedience and based on their distance from God. So there are times when God judges his people by allowing them to suffer the consequences of their own decisions and their behavior. And the way the Bible speaks of that is in God turning his face from his people and away from them. And I think that's really what Hosea chapter 9 is all about. Now, how did it get to that point? Well, for years, God's people were blessed with the presence of God. And for years, they would fall into these patterns of refusing to honor and glorify God with their faithfulness. And Hosea sent the message that God was about to withdraw from them— And then when he withdraws from his people, his hand of blessing also is withdrawn from his people. So God is light. So without God or without his hand of blessing, there's going to be darkness. God is peace. So without his hand of blessing, there's going to be strife. God is love. So without his presence, there's going to be enmity. And God is holy, so without his hand of blessing, there's going to be sin. Now, if you want to look at a basic structure of Hosea chapter 9, it's divided into four basic parts. The first part is focusing on a prophecy of what is coming. Now, it's interesting that it's likely Hosea delivered the opening part of this message on the occasion of the harvest festival. They would hold a harvest festival in the autumn of the year that was a joyful time. It was a celebration of the harvest and the blessing of God. Uh, There would be food and laughter and dancing, and nobody had a disaster on their mind when Hosea stepped forward and demanded that the celebrations cease. I pick up reading here in Hosea 9 and verse 1. He says, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other people's. For you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. The threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fall in her. Fell in her. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to Him. It shall be like bread of mourners to them. All who eat it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. What will you do in the appointed day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? The people forsook God and God forsook the people. The blessings symbolized by the harvest were going to be removed. And this harlotry and this unfaithfulness that is mentioned here is really spiritual adultery. Now, it might have been actual physical adultery as well, but it was certainly spiritual adultery. And the people were guilty of doing the things that the Canaanites had done. And the bottom line is sacrifices that come— From unclean hands are unclean sacrifices. Things that are offered up to God with impure hearts are impure offerings and are ultimately unacceptable to God. So that's the first part, a prophecy of what is coming. The second part is why these things are coming. And what Hosea does is he proclaims terrible judgments that are to come. The people's reception of the prophet himself illustrates the problem. He told them that Assyria was coming and he wanted them to turn back to God. And what did they do? They laughed at him. They mocked him. Uh, They became hostile. Look again in verse 6. For indeed they're gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Uh, Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows the prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of your iniquity and your great enmity. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fouler snare in all his ways. Enmity is in the house of his God. They are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the firstfruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame and they became an abomination like the thing they loved. So why were these things coming? They were coming because of the judgment of God. Now, you'll recall that the other prophets received similar treatment. This was not confined to Hosea alone. The other prophets received similar treatment. Their messages did not lack in wisdom. Their messages did not lack in clarity or courage or integrity. Uh, James Boyce wrote, uh, considered objectively, it's hard to think of any words in history that bear more the marks of being sane, passionate, and constructive discourses. Besides, the things they prophesied came true. So the preacher said, it's hard to imagine any words that could be any more true or could be any more sane. And yet the people mocked the prophet. And the things that he prophesied would, in fact, come true. The reason that the prophets were so despised was because the sins and the hostilities of the people were so great. Sin has that effect always of separating us from God. And it causes people to be morally bankrupt, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, and unable to hear the word of the Lord. And that always brings consequences. Now the third part uh, that is in view here is a prayer by Hosea, a prayer by Hosea. Look again in verse 11. He says, As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place, so Ephraim will bring out his children uh, to the murderer." So God is speaking here. And then in response to that in verse 14 is the referenced prayer. Give them, O Lord. Now notice what happens here when he says, give them, O Lord. The prophet essentially is left without words. What will you give? The prophet asks, give them a miscarrying womb and dry breast. Now, this is remarkable because Hosea is in such a state of despair about the spiritual condition of the people that he doesn't even know what to ask for. And he even asked, what are you going to give them? He knew that God was a God of righteousness and he knew that he had been given a message of judgment. But the prophet also loved the people. His heart was for the people of God. So he wants to pray to God, even knowing that he's been given this message of judgment, and he wants to ask the Lord what it is that he's going to do. And that brings us to the fourth part of chapter 9, and that is God's final word on the subject followed by Hosea's response. God's final judgment on the matter followed by the prophet's response. Verse 15, all their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them because of the evil of their deeds. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. And then verse 17, my God will cast them away because they did not obey him and they shall be wanderers among the nations. Now, Hosea couldn't do anything at this point. After he asked the question, God, what will you give them? He's left with nothing except to acknowledge God's judgment. And God's judgment was going to be terrible. It was going to be swift. It was going to be thorough. But then his people would be sent away in exile. Now, I think about uh, Moses and really... His finest moment when he offered up his own life in the place of his people. But you remember that the Lord did not take him up on his offer because ultimately Moses was not a fit substitute. Uh, Among other things, he had been a murderer himself. Um, He couldn't save himself. He was dependent on God's grace and he certainly couldn't save anybody else. But the word of the Lord says that God ultimately did send a deliverer. And that's exactly what we are anticipating in this Christmas season and this time of Advent as we're looking forward. So when we read Hosea and we hear the word of judgment and we hear the word of consequences, we also have to see it through the lens of the fact that God was going to send the Deliverer in Jesus Christ. Even though we all at some point find ourselves in the valley having broken the commandments of God, standing in uh, really a deserving place of judgment, we look to Christ and we see how He was willing to stand before the Father and how He was willing to bear our sins. The way He was willing to take on the weight of a rebellious people and do what nobody else could do, He was willing to do it on our behalf. And this is the only sacrifice that is acceptable to God And when we believe that, God will spare us of the just consequences of our sin. Now, let's focus uh, for these next few moments on chapter 10. As we come to chapter 10, God calls out the people for having a divided heart before him and being guilty before him. Foreign powers were going to dominate the people. Uh, They would no longer have their own king, is what the Scripture is speaking of here. The altars would be overgrown with thorns and thistles as they embraced pagan gods. And when they kicked against God, he would chasten them and there would be terrible results of their pushing back against God and kicking against God and resisting God in disobedience. And what I want to do is I want to spend the remainder of my time with you in this Bible study in chapter 10 and verse 12. Let's read chapter 10 and verse 12, which is really the directive that arises out of this chapter. And here's what it says. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and reigns righteousness On you. So all of a sudden, we're brought into this agricultural imagery that is absolutely chock full of symbolism. The pattern of seeking selfish pursuits and selfish satisfaction began in the Garden of Eden. It's still a problem today. And he's giving us some symbols that are reminding us of our spiritual condition what we are to do in response to that, and then what God will do when we turn to him. The fallow ground represents our hearts. Now, I love the way the Bible gives us these illustrations that are natural illustrations, but yet they demonstrate very deep spiritual truths, And I think the reason that God does that, I think the reason he does in his word, I think the reason that Jesus teaches so much in that way is that we are a very simple people and clear teaching is something that we can lay hold of with the help of the Holy Spirit. And these symbols that he uses here were something that the people could easily identify with everyday examples of life that we might be able to take hold of. Now, the fallow ground representing our hearts simply refers to ground that needs to be broken up. So it's hard ground that needs to be plowed. It could be dry ground. It could be ground that's been barren for a while. It could be undisturbed ground. But I think definitely it refers to our hearts. And the reason I think it refers to our hearts is because our hearts are what need to be broken up so that God can bring us to a place of revival. The heart is the seat of our affections. It's the place where our motives come from. And the heart can either be soft or it can be hard. Listen to what Psalm 51 in verse 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Or listen to Psalm 95 in verse 8 through 10. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. These are just two examples of scripture passage is speaking of the heart because the heart represents so much of who we are. Now, let me give you a warning here because when we have a been there, done that attitude, maybe this is particularly a problem for church people or people who have been Christians for quite some time. If our hearts are hard, we can hear the most stirring of all messages we can hear the most dynamic of all teaching of the Word of God and it have absolutely no effect. We might agree with it in our heads. We might know that it's true. We might believe it intellectually, but it has no effect. And the reason being is that fallow ground is unfruitful ground. And fallow ground doesn't produce anything. And only God can break up the fallow ground. We also find here the symbol of the seed. And the seed being sown, sow for yourselves righteousness, is ultimately representative of the Word of God. Remember in our study in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus said specifically, the seed is the Word of God? So I think the uh, word of the prophet here talking about sowing in righteousness is the Word of God sown to holiness. It shows us the path of holiness. But before it shows us the path of holiness, you know what it does? It exposes sin in our lives. Do you know that's why many people are resistant against the Word of God because the Word of God shines that light in on our lives and it shows us for who we really are and it shows God for who He really is. So people will reject the Word and they say, well, the Bible's not true or the Bible has errors or the Bible can't be trusted. What does it come down to? It comes down to whether or not God can be trusted and whether or not what He has said to us can be trusted. So it shows us our sin And then it leads us to the place of repentance. And then it leads us in the path of holiness. Now, you'll notice also here the symbol in verse 12 of the promised rain. This promised rain, I believe, is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, you know by nature, even if you're not a full-out farmer or haven't ever been around it, uh, maybe you've gardened or planted some seeds along the way, and you know the very simple aspect of this, that seed requires water in order to be able to grow. And uh, by the same token, the Word of God and the Spirit of God work in tandem in our lives. And the Word of God is applied to our hearts and as that seed is implanted in us, the Holy Spirit illuminates it and shows us the way. The spiritual person needs water. Now listen to how Ezekiel puts it in Ezekiel 34 and verse 26. He says, I will make them in all the places around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season, and there shall be showers of blessing." Maybe you've forgotten and you thought that was just an old song, that was an old hymn. It's actually from the Bible. Showers of blessing that would come from God. And Ezekiel's not referring to an actual rain shower, but rather to a spiritual shower of the blessings of God by the Holy Spirit. So understand that the Spirit gives life. He is the one who regenerates us and brings us alive. When we encounter the Word of God, what does the Bible say in the book of Romans? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We apply the Bible to our lives and then we grow in Christ. Hebrews 10 and verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the Word and the Spirit working in tandem in our lives. Now, these people listening to the message of the prophet would have understood the concept of fallow ground, ground very well. They knew the history of the nation. They knew the circumstances that they had found themselves in. They knew the warning that had come time and time again by the prophets. And what was left for them to do was respond to it and answer the call of God. And we need to consider the condition of the fallow ground. And further, we need to ask ourselves the question, are our hearts representative of fallow ground? Are our lives overgrown with thorns and briars and weeds and sin and rebellion? None of us can plead innocence and none of us can plead ignorance. We are guilty. And whether we've simply drifted away or we've run away from God and chosen to chase after idols, we are still in the same circumstance. So i want to ask this question in these few moments that we have remaining tonight. If we're going to seek the Lord, what do we need to do? If it's time to seek the Lord, what do we need to do? The first thing we need to do is we need to break up The fallow ground. We need to break up the fallow ground. Now, it's interesting that the scripture doesn't tell them to break up other people's fallow ground or to break up fallow ground that didn't belong to them. Do you know we're pretty good at that, of recognizing problems and sins in other people's lives? But that's not what they're directed to do. They're directed to break up the fallow ground in their own lives and to recognize their rebellion against God. So we're faced with a choice. We can repent, we can return, we can be reconciled to God, or we can refuse. And if we refuse, we will find ourselves under the judgment of God. So I want you to think about the goodness of God in your own life. Who of us would not be able to declare tonight that God has been good to us? Consider whether it be health or home or family or friends or employment or protection or goodness. God has rained these blessings down on us year after year. And he has generously provided for us spiritually. And what he is looking for is character on the part of his people who reflect his character. Or to say it more directly, God is seeking for your life to be of such character that you reflect God's character. And he expects you to be right on the inside so that you can be right on the outside. And it's so important to break up that fallow ground that we're not where we need to be with the Lord. And then if we're going to seek the Lord, we need to plant the seeds of righteousness. So what he talks here of in verse 12, of sow for yourselves righteousness. When a farmer breaks up fallow ground, what's he trying to do? He's trying to cultivate it so that it will bear something good. He's got to, after he breaks up that ground, plant the seeds of whatever he's anticipating that he wants to harvest. And then he's going to fertilize the field. He's going to make sure about the weeds and whatever else might be encroaching on it. He's going to make sure that it's properly drained, and he's going to try to get uh, some irrigation to it if there's not enough rain. And what is he looking for? He's looking for these seeds that he's planting to actually produce something that is good. Now, I love the way the Apostle Paul contrasts really the work of fallow ground and the work of uh, productive ground in the book of Galatians. I'll not go and read those passages right now, but you're familiar with them. Uh, He speaks uh, of the works of unrighteousness or the works of the flesh and then names those uh, one by one. And then he speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. How do you think that fruit of the Spirit is a reality in our lives? Love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. How does that become a reality in our lives? As the seed of the Word of God is implanted in us, and then the Holy Spirit produces that fruit, and He makes it a reality in our lives. And I think all of us need to ask the question if we're not as close to the Lord as we would like to be, who moved? God's not moved, God is unchanging. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when you plant those seeds of righteousness, having broken up the fallow ground, and the Lord waters those seeds by the power of His Spirit, that's when good things, righteousness is produced. Now, I've got to say in a message like this, if you're not a Christian, you don't have a field that's gonna produce. You have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. You have the ultimate of fallow ground, but that can be changed in an instant. If you're willing to confess your sin and repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you can have that eternal inheritance in Him and know that your ground will be good ground. And if you're a Christian and you know that you need to repent and return to the Lord, Remember what God's telling you to do here and look to Him in faith. Trust in Him and seek the Lord because it is time to seek the Lord. And if we seek the Lord, He can be found. That's a promise in His Word. And when He's found, it's always something that is good.